0: This episode of 502 Conversations was recorded at SICON 2016, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry Conference. I recorded this episode in a room right near where the conference was taking place, so you may notice a little bit of bleed through of crowd noise. Please enjoy. And welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby. I have scored or landed a big fish, I think. Cognitive psychologist Ray Hyman is with me. He's agreed to sit down and talk, and I greatly appreciate that. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction here. I wrote it down because I wanted to get this right. Ray Hyman is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Oregon. He is a noted critical inquirer of the paranormal, and along with James Randi, Martin Gardner, and Paul Kurtz. He is a founder of the Modern Skeptical Movement and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Dr. Hyman is the creator of the Skeptics Toolbox, which is a four-day intense course that teaches people how to be better skeptics. In the words of James Alcock, and I have permission to use this quote because I asked him, Dr. Hyman is an expert in the study of deception and self-deception, and has dedicated most of his professional career to the study of why people come to believe strange things, how they can be fooled, and how some people set out to fool them. He is known for the Hick-Hyman law, a few aphorisms, and for being extremely fair-minded. Thank you for joining me today. I greatly You're appreciate welcome. this. So you have a Ph.D.
1: in cognitive psychology. No, there was no cognitive psychology when I got a Ph.D. I got my Ph.D. in 1953 from Johns Hopkins University. I was basically an experimental psychologist, and at that time, just almost getting into a transition period, including my dissertation, I did my dissertation on information theory, which was a predecessor to cognitive psychology um, and um, it was just at the time that behaviorism was breaking down. it still was the dominant thing when I was being taught psychology, Uh, we all taught it from a behavioristic point of view, and behaviorism, to keep it simple, simply says that to be scientific, like other scientific areas of the world, psychology has to focus only on external things, what comes from the outside, stimulation, and how the organism responds. Anything in between, like the mind or something like that, that's mysticism. Oh, and you were called a mystic. You would—it was like uh, like behaviorists were going after like we skeptics. Do. They were d- exposing uh, the mysticism of people who talked about a brain, you know, internal thoughts and stuff like that. And um, it's just amazing to me because up for the first seventy years, psychology. Was dominated by behaviorism with the idea that all there is from a scientific point of view is input from the environment, and then is output that you can see. But if you couldn't see it, it wasn't there yet, from a scientific point of view. And today, I think every psychologist who grows up, because most psychologists living today have grown up in the post behavioristic era, and they take it for granted that. In every interaction with the environment, we humans make a big contribution. In other words, there's a contribution to the environment, but there's equally a contribution of the organism. And without that, you don't understand why people can get fooled, why we can fool ourselves, and how cold psychic readers can work and stuff like that. Because we don't realize how much of what we are observing and dealing with the environment we put into it. We interact, and we can't help it. So that everything we see, everything we do, everything we consider is partially constrained by what's out there, but equally is created by what we believe and what we bring to the situation. And that alone, this idea that there's always a contribution of the observer, any environment in every situation, can account for all the successful activities of the human, but also can, accounts for why we all can be
0: fooled. Going off of that, there have been a couple of, I'll call it magic shows here. Not, it's not magic, but it's, it's really good trickery. How do we control ourselves if we don't want to give away information?
1: It's impossible. Is it? Yeah, because, uh, let me see, I was a cold reader for a lot of my career, too. I used to read poems and stuff like that. And, and on a lot of television shows, I to demonstrate what we call cold reading. I did a workshop here on cold reading. Uh-huh. And what cold reading is, is um, is uh, the term that came to be used in the 40s for how I can encounter a person I've never met before, I don't have any prior information on them, but then I can give them a reading that they believe is completely, 100% accurate about themselves. It's, the term comes from, originally, from uh, people who are applying to be in a play, you know, they they come to uh, oh, cold reading. Free, they yeah. give them
0: a script to read, they and they want to see some emotional. Right.
1: And as far as I can tell, Max Maven, who is a another one of these great uh, magicians who do mental type stuff like you're talking about, uh, Max Maven and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out when did this term cold reading come about and how did it come about. Well, it only come about applied to psychic readers. Uh in nineteen forty four, William Gresham in a wonderful book called Nightmare Alley, and it was a a Grade B movie with Gregory Peck in it too. And a scene big scene in the movie and out of the, out of the book is someone doing this here at his Gregory Peck who's the man. He does a cold reading on a sheriff who's trying to break up their carnival or you know, or get money out of it, something like that. But whatever it is, the, he, there's there's a problem with the sheriff, and he gives the sheriff a cold reading, and the sheriff so impressed that,
0: that they can do anything they want. You know? oh. so uh, before you go on too far, cold reading would apply to straight psychics who sit with you at a table. No, well, Spiritual no, the, mediums.
1: No, no, no. Well, they don't if they're doing it, they don't know they're doing it. No, there's two. It's, they, the world breaks up of, of people to give you readings, it breaks up into roughly two camps there's what's called shut eyes. Shut eyes make about, who knows, about 90% of all people who do readings, gypsies out there and stuff like that. They're called shut eyes because they they, they believe what they're doing too. They have no, they're not out there to literally con you. Whereas the best readers are what we call, quote readers, because they consciously know what they're doing and the psychology they're using to get at you. And um, so, uh, we call, we, well, people don't use these terms accurately, anyways, but most of us who study cold reading, so we, we apply the term cold reading to a small group of people who are out there doing readings, but they know that there's nothing to, to it. They're, they're, they're using psychology and they're using this idea that people make their a contribution to everything.
0: If I fancy myself a psychic or a psychic medium, and I'm deluded into thinking that I'm doing it, that's another category. If I believe yes, it we myself. you them shut eyes. Because they just don't see it themselves. Yeah. And so do yeah, you. Yeah,
1: and then and, and the major category people are in that category.
0: Do you do this? No kidding. Most yeah. people actually think they have the power. Lots of people think they have the power, yeah,
1: because it's, it's deceptive. If they I try just, to do it, they, it works. They, don't, they think this works because of some power they have or they're attaching onto. They don't understand the psychology of it.
0: But I've seen a number of shows that I've worked on where they're mostly asking questions. Like, um, did you come because you're, you're looking for someone from the past? And I, I get the sense that maybe it was an, a man in your life that was very influential. And a lot of times, it's a complete, oh, no. And, but, and then they go on, I'm sorry, I'm getting maybe a strong female dominance. So it was kind of male. So it seems like, how could you delude yourself into thinking you're doing that, when mostly you're asking questions, but then the medium usually says, never tell the medium anything. But then they proceed to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> well,
1: I don't know. I, I don't ask a lot of questions, uh, and uh, it varies how people do this. I would say these, these shut-eyes actually are pretty bad yeah. compared to people who consciously know what they're doing. Um, and uh, let me tell you what I, the basics of what I give in my... Um, Workshop the cold reading workshop I give you I teach everyone within a half hour i never done before remember these are skeptics too yes I teach them within a half hour to give each other a reading and we have them do that I pair them up and they give each other a reading I give them, I coach them a little bit and then I ask them each each person got the reading from their partner rate the reading on a scale from zero to hundred percent how good it was and accurate of them the average has been over um, I did my first cold reading workshop and 1994 in Belgium, and the average reaction over these times, of all these workshops I've done, maybe 60 or so, uh, is 85% accuracy. Remember, these are skeptics I'm dealing with. So these people themselves feel that this person who's never done it before just gave them a reading and that's 85% accurate about who they are. Wow. And most of them, by the way, a lot of them, a large percentage say 100%.
0: Wow, not too many things are 100% accurate. No, but I got,
1: um, I asked them, well, I asked for a show of hands yesterday, on Wednesday, uh, of the people who just finished this. I asked a show of hands, uh, how many got uh, a uh, reading that they would describe as 90 to 100% accurate? And about almost half, not quite, almost half raised their hands. And then I asked those who got 80% or more accurate reading, and they raised their hands, and now we're getting almost 60% of the total group. And remember, these people had never done it before, and they didn't know they had this power. <laughs> so with a little practice. Yeah, you know, what I teach them basically is this. I tell them most of the reading is going to be done, the reading is set up before you actually do the reading. And the kind of introduction, I call it setting the stage. When you come to me for a reading, uh, I used to read poems and try to make a living at that. And did you believe it when you did it? Just I well, I started. I was sixteen when I started, and I uh, I still do it for television stuff like that. But I stopped in terms of getting money out of it. I was twenty-two when I stopped. So were you
0: shut-eyed at the time? I guess I'll ask you.
1: No, well, I wasn't shut-eyed. It was in between. Okay. I was a skeptic even I was a skeptic from age seven onwards. So as far as I know, everything I can remember about my whole life, I was always a
0: skeptic. Okay, I didn't want to, to um, right. dis, uh, you know, take you off the rail there, but I just wanted to know if you realized well, you well were- that's an, It's an awkward question because yes and no.
1: I picked palm reading. I was doing mentalism like you saw these people do. Okay. I was Mental. a mentalist. When from my age, I did my first magic show for money at age seven. Wow. It was just a lucky thing. I was um, My father brought me home for my birthday some of these tricks that you buy in a, in a joke shop. I took them to my school for show and tell, and I did them. The teacher said, I don't know if I did them well or not, but she said, would you like to do that for the Parent Teachers Association meeting? So I did it for the Parent Teachers Association meeting, and they paid me $5. This was 1935. Wow, that's a lot of money. It was a lot of money. With that $5, I went and bought myself a top hat that's come down over my ears, but I saw magicians need top hats to pull a rabbit out of. So now you're setting the stage, yeah. Yeah, and I uh, went to a printer, and he made me cars, business cars to hand out, and he called me the Merry Mystic because I lived on the Mystic River. And... uh, In Massachusetts? Yes, and he uh, put a little rabbit on the hat and he called me the Merry Mystic, and I went around and distributed these cards all over the I was just a kid, you know, and I distributed them all over the city. And I got a call from the uh, library for their story hour, and I, they paid me something. I went and did that, and that took off from there. So. And you're seven. What's that? And you're seven. Seven. And uh, I used to go to, I had this little library, branch library in the bottom of the hill where I lived. And I used to go down there, and I used, as far as I know, I was the only one that used the library. I was still a kid. And a librarian would pick out books for me. She, we were very friendly. And I, she knew I was doing magic, so she found a book on Houdini for me. It was a children's book on Houdini, actually. I read that book, and I saw, that, first of all, I learned about Houdini, the great magician. But also, I learned that he spent a lot of his time debunking spiritualists and debunking uh, fake psychics and all sorts, and I just I, I realized I thought if I'm going to be a great magician, I got to debunk. Be also a debunker and a skeptic. Oh, okay. So as far as I know, ever since then I've always been a skeptic. So uh, when I was in high school, I would go. I found that I couldn't go to couldn't get to, into a séance, spiritual séances, but I found there are spiritual uh, churches all around the Boston area. And they would have sometimes meetings, spirit readings, meetings. I would go to them. And I was the only one, I was stood on like a sore thumb. I was a little kid, I was in my teens, and everyone around me were elderly people, women and men, and nothing in between. And um, these readings, uh, these meetings were, there was a person, a visiting, traveling spiritualist, who would come and demonstrate. He'd have people who write. Questions on a piece of paper and they were folded. Someone would collect them and put in a basket in front of the reader on the, on the podium. And the reader would be blindfolded and he would uh, reach in and take one of the slips and put it to his head and say, Oh, someone is thinking of John, who is that? And uh, you want to know whether you can contact John and stuff like that. That was a typical reading that they would do. So one time I was at uh, one of these readings. And it was horrible. This this man he was older and he uh he was he, but he was the visiting spiritualist and he was taking and doing putting his lips to his head, but he had trouble reading he's reading another one when he's putting this one to his head. And he's having trouble reading so he couldn't see. So he was lifting his blindfold up and openly, you know, and looking down very closely to get the reading. Openly? He, openly. So I looked around me, and there was a nice lady i got, I got in to know, and she was sitting beside me, and she was looking at the ceiling. Everyone, None of them were looking at at this fellow. And I was nudging her. I said, look, 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 look there. And she looked at the ceiling, she looked around, but she wouldn't look. And it dawned on me, these people don't want to see this. They, they don't think. want to know. They don't want to know. Uh, and I had a lot of examples like that I learned. Uh, I took a spiritualist class. They had a class for budding spiritualists, so they can become spiritualists themselves. So I took it. We'd go every night and a medium would come and we would be signed a, uh, a a a spirit uh, person who would help us. And they're all given Indian names, by the way, Oh, and I had something like Sleeping Tomahawk or something. And this medium would call her own medium she would she would go into a trance we are all sitting here, maybe about 20 of us sitting in the room and she was sitting on a podium and a platform and she would go into a trance sort of and her own guiding spirit would come come and she would she presented this guiding spirit was coming down the middle of the path between the chairs and coming up to the platform to meet her you know to be with sit beside her and she would go and help that meet up the, that spirit up the stairs and put it on. So the, she's miming
0: this, you're saying. Right.
1: Pretty soon, after a few nights of these meetings, some of the people other people, you audience know, were going off to help that spirit uh-huh. up there. Pretty soon everyone was seeing this spirit come and sit on the stage with her. And they were helping her up the stairs. And I was the only one who wasn't, but I was feeling a lot of pressure to to, to take part and do that too, you know. And when I got to that point, I said, oh this is too much for me. I'm going to get out of this, so I, I stopped doing that. But I, it was very powerful.
0: Well, that's a well-known phenomenon, right? Right. Not, if everybody else is seeing something, you right. don't want to be the one person. Exactly. And it works in reverse, too. If, you have a, if you're in a class with a professor and you have a question, but nobody else is asking questions, you're not going to ask your question either because you don't want to seem like you right, don't know all what's, all what's part going of on. That's psychology of it all, right. And that would be some of the cognitive psychology. Right. Okay, now I'll get back to the
1: palm reading, oh, so huh? I believe it. Okay. Uh, by the way, the closest thing I've ever had to almost believing was when I was in a, under the pressure of being a kid in that class with all these old elderly people, and they're beginning to see the, psych, the spirits too, you know, and I'm the only one not left out there. That's <laughs> so you just left. I- so I almost felt depressed. If I left, you know, I was. But uh, then when I've been doing, I took up palm reading. I took it up because I was doing mind mentalism type shows like. like um, Berenick checkers that you saw yeah. if you saw the show last night. They'd call that mentalism as when you try, you're doing stuff where you're apparently reading minds. Stuff well, he like was that. unbelievable. That's what I did. I preferred to do the magic that Jamie Swiss does, you know, with cards and stuff like that. But uh, people paid me much more money to do a, a uh, mentalism show, then. and uh, so I almost everything I did professionally for six years was as a mentalist where I read minds, and you don't. You know, there's, there's, there's an ethics there. You don't really claim to be a, that's, that's real. And I never claimed to be real. You had ethics. <laughs> I would come out and say, as a, and I looked much younger than I was even, but I was still very young. I would come out, again every show I did, by saying, look, what I'm gonna do, I'm here just to entertain you, and I hope you enjoy it. I work hard at it, but I don't make any claims. And then I would do my show, At the end, as far as I can tell, everyone believed I was for real. And I now later, as a psychologist, realized what's going on here. It's what we call the invited inference. If I came out and said, look, I'm a psychic. I have contact with with these spirit entities and stuff like that. I'm setting myself up for a challenge. I made a claim. And I'm open to challenge because I made a claim like that. Whereas when I was coming out and saying, "Look, I don't make any claims at all. I'm just here to entertain you," and I go ahead and do it, I haven't challenged. The, I haven't given any basis to challenge me. And now I know it's like the term we use in psychology is invited inference. If you let someone else make, the, lead them to make the inference you want them to make, it's much stronger than if you make the claim yourself.
0: And does it also invite them? They want you to succeed. They want to help. Oh yes.
1: Yeah. They're rooting for you. But on the other hand, if you came out and directly said it right away, you're setting yourself up for a challenge. There's going to be, at least some people going to challenge you. Okay, you made that claim, then they can challenge you. But they have no basis for claiming me because I didn't make any claim. And it turns out, after the fact, I know know that that was very powerful. I was getting everyone to believe (laughs) that I was real,
0: (laughs) even though I wasn't claiming it. Now, do you excuse shut eyes? Or if they believe what they're doing and they don't understand what they're doing, even though it's, do you understand my question? Right. Do you give them some kind of, um, I shouldn't say, do you give them a little bit of a pass and say it's not fraud? Or I, I hate to use those strict terms <laughs> like fraud, but if they don't, if they really think they're doing it, which I didn't realize 90% did, I'm shocked at that, um, is that some kind of excuse for them doing it?
1: No, in a way, because they can be very harmful. Because since they don't understand it, they think they do have these powers. They're more likely to go. Um, by the way, you know Mark Edward. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know of him. I don't. Okay. Him. Well, he was I- in doing the, shop, the workshop with me. and the workshop because he his whole life has been as a more or less as a professional psychic. Yes. He was on that. Uh, he was one of these call psychists, People would call in, and he would, on that psychic network, you know, and he would answer. you know, give them readings on the phone, and then he went and did readings and fairs, and then he then became a, I think that's his basic. He makes most of his money. He he does these readings at parties for celebrities at Hollywood and and movie stars. Mark you know.
0: Edwards, not to be confused with John Edwards. Yeah, not John. Been Edwards. Been not Mark Edwards. Mark. Edwards.
1: The good thing about is knowing what he's doing. He at least was aware when he was doing the meeting, especially when people calling on the phones. Most of these people calling on the phones were had terrible situations. Their their boyfriend had beaten them up, and he'd left them. And they wanted, despite that, they wanted to get him back, and they wanted advice on that. Or, uh, or they were showing that some, they wanted they, they were telling him they wanted to commit suicide and stuff like that. Well, this is a touchy situation, so he knew knew, knew enough not to get into that. But what he did keep is eye. List of phone numbers, agencies, and stuff like that. So he would nicely get them to call this suicide center and do stuff like that. So he at least tried to push them in the right direction, rather than try to handle himself. eyes don't know that, so they they will go willingly try to tell the person who's suicidal what to do or something like that.
0: And, and that would be a big problem.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a serious problem.
0: You were talking about the workshop, and you say part of the first thing is to set the stage. Yes, you set the stage. By the way.
1: The reason I'm into like cold reading, I do these workshops, is not to turn out more psychic readers. Because I, I teach them, I show them, and within a half hour I get them all doing good readings. Uh, but to show the power of this. And I also want to make sure that, they real, that they, what they learn thing is that the psychic reading itself is a microcosm of all life, all interaction of humans with one another. And if you understand that, you understand why smart people, the smartest people in the world, can go very badly astray. Why smart people can go wrong, which has been the theme of my whole life, my professional life. And uh, so I don't see it just because it's a fascinating thing in itself, it really helps explain everything else. Again, if I set you up correctly, and the way I set people up is. I tell my people in the shop workshop that the success of the reading, most of the success of the reading, depends upon not what you do during the reading, but what you do before the reading. I call it setting the stage. And part of that is during a very short chit-chat or whatever, when you introduce yourself, people come to you. First of all, you let them know they're coming into your world, which is a straight, different world from what they live in ordinarily. And the rules in your world are I decide the rules. No, I do it subtly. I don't say it uh, that directly. I also let them know I've been doing this for a long time. I'm I'm a very successful reader. Then I let them know that it takes two to tango. That the success of this reading depends not just on me, but on both of us. What I've subtly done is I put the onus of success on them. If it doesn't succeed, it's their fault, not my fault. And so already, I've got them, so they're going to cooperate, they're going to, but also, in the real world, not, not necessarily my cold readings with these people that I haven't come for directly to a read ordinarily, in the real world, when people come in to get a reading from a psychic of some sort, they're doing it because they have real world, real serious problems. And <clears throat> so the, the person you're giving a reading to really wants you to succeed. They want you to be good, and they're going to help you.
0: So they can get help.
1: Yeah, and so what happens if you tell them something that is very directly goes actually clashes with with their notion of themselves? You tell them they're having a very bad marriage. This problem with their marriage, and at least one thing they good about it: the marriage is good as far as they know. They're going to think, begin thinking during the reading, even, and you see it. They're going, and that's the beauty of all this. They can find ways of saying, "Yeah, you know." It's a good marriage on the surface, but there are these little things, and they will bring to their own mind ways to justify that. Many, many years ago, I heard about, I came across a person, I think she was doing her doctoral degree in sociology in Colorado, and her whole focus was on studying psychic astrologers and palm readers and people who do psychic readings. And she got permission—not from all, but she got permission for some to let let her at that time to tape the session. And her whole thesis was on only focused on those instances where apparently the reader made a mistake or said something that that wasn't right, and how the reader and the client, how they work together to make it right. Unknowingly. Unknowingly, yeah. And because members, they want you to be right. So you, you the people think their marriages has been going along well and you tell them, well, you see problems in the marriage. One, they can put it to the future. It means something to look out for <laughs> uh, uh, that's going to happen to the marriage. Or they can go back and they can find in their memory, and this is the beauty of it. This gets into psychology and memory, too. We call it retrieval mechanism. When when and I'm telling you something, and you're trying to cooperate to, to see how it applies to you, the, what you achieve from your memory, mostly stuff that goes along with what I just said, you're having trouble with your marriage. Well, when, if you ask them ordinarily how's your marriage, they would say it's great.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when we say you're having trouble, what that does is mean they're going to go to the memory and just, just highlight, activate uh, all the kinds of memories they could or they don't think of, them, but that, they hate to think times when, when there was trouble with the marriage or they had an argument or something like that. And that'll come to the top, and that, that brings it to the top and makes them say, yeah, boy, he's right on.
0: Well, and also, I would define trouble because I mean, I might have an unpleasant conversation with my wife on the phone over the fact that I forgot to pick up the cream at the supermarket. Is that trouble? <laughs> yeah, okay, you got it. Uh, <laughs> or I is was... trouble, you know, the fact that I gambled all the money away and we can't pay the mortgage? Now that's trouble. <laughs> That's right, so you got it you're getting the idea.
1: Um, I was in England to do a show back uh, probably in the 1990s, something like that. They did a show on um, paranormal phenomena of various kinds. And one thing they did a whole segment on this Christian Dion. This guy was used to come on um, uh, he's still on the web, I know, but he used to come on uh, London Broadcasting uh, once a week and uh, people would call in and he'd give him a reading. He was a big thing there, and they wanted me to watch him give his reading, and they gave me, sent me ahead of time, uh, about 18 tapes of previous shows he had done, you know, audio tapes. And I listened to them, after listening to them several times, I could reduce it all to a pattern. And uh, so in when I they, I they took me to England, they show me sitting in the studio sitting in the control room while he Krishna is sitting at the bike doing his readings, but while I was there i was, this guy was a cover character when I was waiting for him. he drives up in a Bentley. He wasn't driving he had a chauffeur. he gets out of the Bentley he's wearing like from uh, uh you know uh, the the Arabian nights is like all he's wearing pantaloons very silk silk pantaloons all dolled up, red, white hair, you know, and everything else, and he comes in the studio with a, a coterie of bodyguards and whatever, and he's treated like royalty, and he goes into the, into the room, and, and he uh, takes the calls, you know, and does his readings. And we got permission to go to one of the people he just given a reading to, to go to her home and interview her and see how she liked the reading. Was to a lady named Yvonne. She lived in West London. So we all went to the the TV crew and I, we went to West London, and they had me go into her house, knock on the door, and go into her house. And we did that several times, and everyone on that street was hanging out the windows watching as if this never saw such an event. Like, this is a big event, you know, (laughs) television. So we went to her, she had a little picket fence in front of her house. So I'd knock on the door, and she'd let me in, and then we went. We, we did that several times because they want to get it just right, to look natural and stuff like that. And she lets me in, and we go back of her house. She had a uh, nice uh, deck, and and a, and a, and lawn. Her backyard was was well, you know, cultivated and stuff like that. And we sat on the porch, and I interviewed her. I said, "Yvonne, you just had a reading from Christian Dion. What did you think of it?" And she said, "Oh, it was wonderful. It was great." So I said, Yvonne, what about it that made it so great? And she says, Well, you know, he told me I had lost my sparkle. And he was right on. <laughs> that was that knocked me up. And then I said, Well, what else did he tell you? And she says, Well, he didn't bring up this property matter. And we have been thinking of selling our house. We hadn't have never did sell it, but we were thinking of it. And maybe in the future, maybe that's what he had in mind. Okay. and That's about all she could bring up, but she said it was the most wonderful reading she ever <laughs> had, and so on. And I was, so, I came out of the house, I come up to the picket fence, and the TV crew has his camera on me, so I'm coming out, and, and I, I'm i at the fence, and I say, you know, uh, she believes this, she believes she's got a wonderful reading, but I could write a computer program to do what Christians Dion is doing. It's a, He's got a formula, and he's just doing it. And the producer got this idea. Why don't we have Ray Hyman do, do, do the same thing then? Well, first of all, I've never done that on the radio. I've always done I depend on visual clues and, and physical, and even when I'm doing palm reading, I'm developing, i holding the people's hands, and when I'm telling them things they want to hear, they're subtly pushing their hands towards me. I'm telling things they don't they want to hear, they're pulling their hands away. It's like they're trying to shape the reading with their hands. So I get all kinds of feedback. I depend upon that, and I can see out of the corner of my eye their facial reactions to what I'm saying, whereas I'm standing there looking at them. They don't make. They cover up. They don't want to give themselves away, so they don't have to pay attention to their hands. But there's always a leakage. We call it. Uh, they're trying to cover something, but they can't cover everything. If they're trying to. Control their facial expressions, stuff like that. to give themselves away with their hands. So you didn't want to do it over the radio, is that? So you, the radio, well, well, pretty- I was concerned about the radio. You're right, because I had never done it, done it without visual feedback. I, I really, I, I've always thought I depend a lot on visual feedback. But uh, the wisely, the producer decided since I don't have a British accent that it might not go well in England. So he arranged for a. A station in Buffalo to put me on. It was a talk show that uh, Lyle something or other used to run, a man named Lyle, and he agreed to let to go along with this. So we flew all the way from London and they put me in a car, and you see me driving around Buffalo in this car talking about it and listening to, I mean, for what reason I'm listening to, to audio tapes of Christian Dion as I'm driving around Buffalo. And uh, <clears throat> then they put me on the radio, uh, on the st- and this guy introduces me as a well-known psychic. He come, come come here and give you readings, you know. You call in and he's going to give you a reading, tell you all about yourself. So I told him, I, I got to I make sure you do this, I said, because for ethical reasons, I said, you make sure you tell everyone that they have to listen to the end of the program because I got a very important announcement to make. Which I was going to tell them that this was all hooey, okay. So the first lady calls in, and I give her a reading. I give the transcript of that on my. If you want that manual, you can have a copy of it, um, and uh, it was great. So I realized this well. <laughs> is gonna go. You can't go wrong on this stuff. I did follow a formula. I got. I did. I reduced Christian Dion's readings to a simple formula. He casts a wide net. He begins by casting a wide net. He will say, "Well." I see that in the last three months or so, maybe the last year or so, things haven't been going too too well with your, well it could be in the business world or something like that. He's casting a net wider and wider and that's how he begins and then he Let's them say something and they say, oh yeah, you're talking about my uh, grandfather, something like that, rather than me, something like that, and things have been going bad with him. And then I follow, he has a few other things. He doesn't use these, I don't think he knows he's using such a principle, but I was able to see that there are only a few few themes, even though his, his problem is that, at that time, he had the biggest audience, radio audience, in all of BBC for the two hours he was on each week. They had the biggest, they, I, so, the, so this huge audience is listening to him. He's got to give them, every reader, a different reading, supposedly.
0: How do you do that? I've, Can I pause you right here sure. for one second? So I see one of your friends is here. We're going to bring him up So because it's going to tie in perfectly to what you're just talking about. Is that okay? Fine. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. 502 Conversations, Brian Kirby, I'm back. Ray Hyman is still here, and we have been joined by James Randi and James Alcock. The three of these gentlemen and two others are the founders
2: of the modern skeptical movement. I I should say that I I was a Johnny-come-lately. I I came to the organizing meeting of PsyCOP, and that's where I met Randi and Ray, but they've been at it for a while.
0: Oh, all right. Um, Let's just, we were talking about the Buffalo Psychic experience that you had and this was going to tie in perfectly to what i wanted to talk to you gentlemen about um so i guess i'm going to sort of wrap it up a little bit do you mind if i ask you a question specifically about that sure so you're doing all these psychic cold readings you've informed me of what shut eyes meant and you were open open eyes that was not the term that you used right cold reader cold reader okay but you were very good at it did anybody come up to you and say, you don't know it, but you actually are psychic? Oh, yes, lots of times. And so that ti- <laughs> that's amazing to me. And you would say, at the disclaimer, I don't, I'm, this is just a party trick, blah, blah, blah. But people would still say, you know. So that ties into what I wanted to ask you about with belief preservation. This the man, he'll be here for that. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the cold reading because you're an expert at this as well, correct? And debunking all of that. And, but you are not a psychic.
3: Well... That's true. Very true. As a matter of fact, I had similar experiences. Actually, we all did, I'm sure, in one way or another. But I would frequently get people, uh, after I, if I put a bit of mentalism into my presentation or lecture or whatever, I would get people coming to me and saying, oh, I really like where you did this and where you did that. But when you told the lady her telephone number and you had never met her before, that was ESP, right? And I'd say, no, no, no. Wait a minute now. I'm no fool. I know the difference between reality and and mythology. That had to be ESP. No, it wasn't ESP. Well, then how was it done? I'm sorry, I'm not going to relate that to you because uh, this is a professional secret and uh, I am a magician by trade. That's my business. That's how I make a living. But he said, but you couldn't have known her telephone number. Yes, I did know her telephone number, and there are ways of doing that sort of thing. And then they they turn on a huff and say, well, if you want to be a liar, be a liar and walk away. you know, Because they're absolutely convinced that it had to be real because that's the way they perceived it, and they're going to stick with that. And I'm sure they went away and said, oh, he's a liar already, but he has ESP. There's no question of it.
0: I'll ask two questions about that. One is you were cold reading and you said you could tell people to pull away from you. You can read facial cues and whatnot. I've read in some of your books, you've actually, something about a TV show, I can't quote it exactly to you, where some psychic had been on and done some great trick and you could do it too. And so they brought you in. And you, I think the story goes, you went into the host's or producer's office the day before, (laughs) tore open the envelope, envelope, resealed it. So he's doing... Psychology, and you're actually—what do you call that when uh, you get the information? Trickery. <laughs> that's trickery.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. I got into the office and I uh, saw the sealed envelope right in the middle of his desk. Well, how
0: do you get into the office in the first
3: place? You walk in. They, they don't necessarily <laughs> lock office doors, you know. And uh, and I recognize I would, you? or Well, they were in the studio and they were doing other taping and such. And I looked around. I saw the fellow's office oh, this is Mr. O'Neill or whoever, and I walked in, and I saw a sealed envelope on the desk, and I knew that he was supposed to have prepared a sealed envelope for me. So there were other envelopes in the desk. So I just took out a fresh one, tore this one open, crumbled it up, put it in my pocket, and read what was inside, then took another envelope, sealed it up, licked it. He could have found my saliva on there, and that would have been evidence right there, you see, DNA. But I put it right back on the desk in the same way, walked out, and he was astonished after it. He was, he could hardly speak. He was so astonished. And I told him, no, that's a trick. No, no, that was no trick. I think, well, they think they know. Let them think they know.
0: So two different ways of doing the same thing. F- oh, so many different ways. Well, I know there ways. are many ways, but did you always do that? This, this is a form of
1: opportunism. Oh, yeah. and you can yes, also take advantage of it. And, a- and there's no way of, of, of winding the tape backwards and figuring out what had happened.
3: No, and you can't plan it. It happens uh, if you if you take advantage of the opportunity. Now look, a pad of paper, blank paper sitting on the producer's desk. Had I not seen that envelope, I would have picked it up and got some inclined light from it and seen the impression of what he wrote. And that would have been very easily done. Same way. Then I would have re- re- just taken off that top sheet that had the impression on it, because almost all these pads leave impressions, and put it back on his desk, I wouldn't have had to open the envelope at all.
0: And so James Alcock, may I call you James? Um, And so um, you're not a mentalist or a magician such as this, right? I'm an amateur magician. So, but you can relate to the fact that when they're dealing with people and they're saying this is, you know, I can't tell you how the trick is done, but it is a trick. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm, and I'm going to take your money. This is a parlor trick. They still want to believe that. And well, so look, be- they need to believe yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're,
2: we're all trying to make sense of the world, right? And we have certain principles we use. So in a culture, I guess it's true around the world, where people believe in telepathy, no one's ever taught them that it isn't it isn't real. They say, okay, what's going on here? This person said he did it by some kind of trickery, but I I watched, I didn't see any trickery, but I know about ESP because I've grown up with that notion. I think this is ESP. That makes sense. In the same way, if someone floats in the air, you would say, there must be strings there, because I know in my experience, people would fall down normally. And if someone says, no, I'm actually floating, most people would say there must be strings. Now, if the person who's floating can create some other kind of reality, I'm using Transcendental Meditation and gives the person explanatory structure, then some people will say, okay, that makes sense to me too. This person is floating because of transcendental meditation. But people are looking for causes. That's a natural kind of reaction.
0: And I wonder, just as you said that, I wonder if we're susceptible to ESP because it just took me back to my childhood and my mother knew when I was lying. And (laughs) I didn't know how, so I'm giving her facial clues, I suppose, right? Yeah, But I don't know that as a child. I think, wow, I can't believe I didn't get away
2: with this. And do I carry that? Well, sure. And and there are lots of other experiences that seem to be ESP-like. So, for example, there are lots of reasons psychologically why if you and your wife have been together for a long time and you're about to mention some trip you had 10 years ago and she mentions it first, it will seem like ESP, but neither you realize that some other cue that you're looking at, maybe a picture on a wall in a restaurant, has reminded you both of the same thing. Or the
3: smell of perfume. Or Or the smell of perfume. And so...
2: Your, your brain tries to make sense of this, and it says, well, there's no way that you can think of that this could have happened. Therefore, I've heard about ESP. Or I grew up thinking about ESP. This is obviously ESP. And once you've had that experience and other experiences like it, you become persuaded this is real. And it becomes a very good explanatory mechanism for a lot of things.
0: But a thousand coincidences in a day don't really add up to ESP. <laughs>
2: no, but it's not just the coincidence. It's the coincidence okay. that, that, that seems very striking. So if if you again, if someone that you know very well, if the two of you haven't talked about going to a, a trip to Colorado 20 years ago, haven't talked about it in years, and you're sitting around in your living room with your friend, and you're about to say, you remember that trip to Colorado? And the person says, by the way, Brian, remember that trip to Colorado? That's striking. right? It's not just a coincidence. It, 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 it's a coincidence with a lot of emotion to it. So most coincidences aren't important, but but ones that strike you emotionally call out for an explanation. And then so people quickly think, well, what could this be? And if there was a brochure with Colorado on the cover on the coffee table, you both say, oh, that's it, that triggered it. But very quickly you scan and there's nothing that you can think of. Your friend is equally surprised. And you say, wow, it seems like we we're both thinking of the same thing at the same time. Same wavelength. Exactly. And same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. And then you say, yeah, I've heard of people with ESP. That sounds like it. So these experiences, aren't common enough that they sort of wash out. They're they're relatively rare, but they're very effective because they produce emotion.
0: And I did not give you a proper introduction. I'm sorry, I had one for um, Mr. Hyman here. Tell me what, tell us what you do. I'm sure they know it, but.
2: I'm a professor of psychology at York University in Toronto. And my interest has always been in, in belief systems, why people believe. And I became particularly interested in things like ESP and so forth because here's a whole set of beliefs that people hold even though most of them know that, that science doesn't support these beliefs. So they're holding these, these beliefs in absence of, of scientific acceptance, and that interested me.
0: And I want to talk about belief preservation in the face of disconfirming evidence in one second, but I didn't give you a proper introduction. either. I'm sure everybody knows who you are. This is the amazing Randy. Thank you for joining us. Do you want to
3: talk about a college where you teach or uh, your professional education? Since I've never taught at any college, no. But uh, I'm more or less self-educated. As a matter of fact, I was... Well, uh, I, and there's no boasting involved here, please. Uh, this is the honest truth. I was one of those unhappy folks. I was a child prodigy, and I didn't go to grade school pretty well at all. I had a truant card. I was this is in Toronto, Canada, where they do strange things like that very often. And uh, I used to carry a little beige card around in my pocket so that if a truant officer going down the street in his squad car looking for children who were out of school or something would grab me. I just simply show him the truant card. And any of the officers, now that only happened twice in my, in my whole young life, both officers had never heard of a truant card because they weren't handed out very frequently. But I was given the, the, this special card to exempt me from going to regular class and I just had to go in at the end of the week or the month or whatever to write any tests that came up. But I was an avid reader, and I was falling asleep in class. And that was sort of embarrassing to the teacher, to say the least. Uh, And snoring in the back of the room is not allowed in most classrooms that I know of. And uh, so they just gave me this little truant card. And I got a chance to visit the Royal Ontario Museum and the Toronto Public Library. Oh, what a a massive place. and What a lovely place to be and to be found in or to be lost in. I I could have stayed there all night. I could have just sat in a chair and slept, and woken up in the in the morning, and uh, continued right on. It was wonderful. It was a it was a good childhood for me, very exciting and, uh, but strange. You see, I didn't I didn't develop a peer group. That's another problem. though. See, as a child, I didn't develop a peer group of people my own age who thought the same way that I did at all.
0: Well, Ray, so, um, may I call you Ray? Sure. Ray said one of his best friends was the librarian, actually, in his town. So let me ask you about this belief preservation. All three of you at once can talk about this in the face of disconfirming evidence. You will actually, uh, Randy and Ray, will tell people this is uh, a trick I do. It's a parlor game. And they'll call you liars and you're really psychic. Um, There are worse forms of that where, you know, we'll wait on a mountaintop for a spaceship on whatever January 12th 1986 the spaceship never comes um, but I can't deal with that so I convinced myself that the great leader missed up the dates or got the math wrong or something and that's just a really bad example I mean, there are many more examples like the ufo that was supposed to be behind the hale bob comet right and these things don't happen but people rationalize why it didn't happen and what's and they make up some story I guess to is that because they
2: can't admit defeat or they really want to believe it and any please well i think belief preservation occurs with all of us so for example if you had a neighbor who said i never eat food i breathe the air i get my nourishment that way um, you would preserve your belief that that's impossible right You'd, in
0: fact i laugh right at that. and
2: and so it's it's natural to to try to preserve beliefs and and some beliefs are more important than others so if if someone says, uh, I never eat chocolate bars, you wouldn't care less. If someone says, I never eat food, you'd be surprised, you probably would doubt it. If you've had experiences with, quote, psychic things, if you've, if you've grown up believing in ghosts and, and ESP Her religion. or religion, then this becomes a very important part of your belief system. And when something challenges it, you do what everybody does, you, you preserve it. You, 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 you find ways of rationalizing the evidence to fit. And this is the whole thing about science the whole notion of science is to get beyond that notion of individual need to preserve beliefs and so the idea is that you 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 trust data and not just data produced by one person but consensual validation of the data so a whole bunch of of people who have the ability and the skill have to agree that this this data justifies such and such a belief but as individuals and this is something i think that skeptics always have to remind themselves of we're capable as well of distorting reality to, to protect our beliefs. And, and, and so it, it's hard to, to fight that natural tendency.
0: Well let me ask each of you a question then if when you've been wrong and I'll just briefly give you a stunning example of myself. I'm really late to the skeptical game but it came about I guess you would say organically. I read and I was raised Christian. I didn't really believe all of it but I believed some of the stories or some of the mythology I guess and I was reading some history books uh, and I came across something about this culture that had a flood myth and it sounded very familiar to me of course and I said no that's not that's my that what are you talking about that's part of my story and so then I read some more and it turns out there are a lot of flood myths and then I found out that there are a lot of saviors there are a lot of people that and I don't know if you've ever had this experience but uh, it was I was shocked and it took me a long time to work out of that. And then once I did, that, it was like that. I said, okay, this is ridiculous. But I was shocked to find that these stories existed in other cultures because I'd never been exposed to it except in my own. Have you all three been wrong about something that was so shocking that it took a while to get over, or are you just all naturally... Well, as a child...
3: Uh, I was not a child. I was at least in my 30s when this happened. I'm, I see. Well, as a child, I... I had some light bulbs go off. I remember I went to the Casino Theater in, in Toronto. I was on, on this path, you see, and I could leave and go to the theater, to the public library, whatever I wanted to And uh, as long as I went in to write the tests at the end of the week. But uh, I went to the Casino Theater, which used to be on Queen Street, now demolished. And uh, it was a vaudeville theater sort of thing. And, the great Blackstone was there, and he, he had a lisp, and he stood on the stage with a young lady floating in front of him. And the music stopped, and he stepped forward, and he said, I could cause that young lady to float there in the air forever, if I wished. But in the interest of your time and your patience, of course, I will now cause her to descend to the couch from which she rose only a few moments ago. Azra, descend. And the girl started to come down, the music swelled up. She reached the couch, stood up and walked forward for bows. And in the balcony, there was a young man, me, sitting there looking forward and just in his mind, two ideas just flickered out. One was, you're going to become an archaeologist. The other, you're going to become a chemist. And those were lost. I guess that archaeology and chemistry lost me. And I don't know whether that was a real loss to them or not. But magic got me. And the next day, I was in the local magic shop asking questions. So bright lights have gone on, turned on, pardon me, in my life. And that was one of them right there.
2: Well, you mentioned religion. I was brought up with a religious mother and a non-religious father. My father never spoke about religion. He never spoke about being an atheist. He just never spoke about religion. He kept his eyes open during prayers. My mother said he was quietly religious. <laughs> but, uh, but because I was brought up in religion, it was, it was difficult to overcome it because all my friends, although they, didn't, they weren't really religious, they were, they were brought up religiously as well, so everybody knew there was a God and... Whether you paid attention to it or not varied with the person. But uh, it took me a, two or three years to sort of work through this, as, as you mentioned, working through it, and come to the conclusion that this doesn't make any sense. And, and to this day, I, I take umbrage when I talk to religious people who say, well, you never had the true religion or you, you would, because I think it's very easy to, to stay religious. It's very difficult to, to shake it if you've been brought up in it. And so I went through that, that transition. But I do understand how people who are religious um, have a difficult time questioning it because that can produce guilt. They've been, they've, been, they've been conditioned to feel that way, not to question. And so I'm sort of sympathetic to them, even though I find it appalling sometimes the way that they are so closed-minded.
0: Do you have a shocking admission of something to truth? I <laughs> something feel, that you thought was true that you later found out to be incorrect? Well, I feel left out. I've never had any
1: religious feelings in my whole life. Uh, I was brought up in a religious family, an orthodox family. Uh, but my parents weren't religious as far as I can tell. The whole point of religion for my mother was, what will the neighbors think if you don't do this? <laughs> oh. And that was, that was the only thing I... So I never had a religious moment in my life and I feel left out.
0: Well, it it doesn't have to be religion, but was there ever a time that you were wrong and surprised to find out how wrong you were? (laughs) I've been wrong lots of (laughs) times. Well, we can move on then. And so one of the questions I want to ask all three of you, because both of you have mentioned doing your magic shows when you were very young, do you think it's more difficult now to fool people or easier? Because the, the, the,
3: the, the, the technology we have now the shows are incredible. Yes. But I, w- I must say one thing, and I'm sure Ray will agree with me on this. Modern technology has not entered into the conjuring trade very much. Nope. It, no, be except, except where it has.
1: It's not been too good. It's using uh, uh, electronic devices to sense things and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of that, but yeah. not
3: as much as You're could right. be You're You're right. right, certainly. You're right. Uh, technology has not. Uh, infected let's say the conjuring trade in other words you don't see people using very high-tech equipment except some electronics as, uh, as Ray said and uh, so it hasn't kept up, the conjuring trade has not kept up with science.
1: There's one way technology has affected magic and it's a, a peculiar way um, it used to be that uh, everyone had handkerchiefs you can count on everyone in the audience having a handkerchief, a lot yeah. of magic, depending on. And my, uh, Jerry Andrews, a good friend of both Randy and myself, and uh, one of the world's great magicians. Uh, Jerry Anders one, one of his favorite tricks he did was he would borrow a handkerchief from someone in the audience, and he had a big steel needle and would accidentally penetrate the needle and really destroy their, basically destroy their handkerchief. But then he pulled the needle out, and he, he went back to them, it all restored, you know. Um, well, poor Jerry, uh, uh, y- you can go and ask people f- to borrow a handkerchief, and almost always they're not going to have a handkerchief. This is because Kleenex came along, you remember? Yeah, well, I know. Uh, it's uh, not well the same with Kleenex. Right. <laughs> hats. The magicians used to be able to borrow someone's right. hat, pull a out or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Most people don't wear hats today. But it was at one time, everyone, every man wore a hat. And so things like that. That kind of technology has affected magic in terms of what looks natural. And today some magicians don't realize that they use stuff, there, there's a lot of things, they use a vase like um, to pour water out of stuff, stuff like that. The vase at one time in maybe 1700s, 1800s were part of the natural f- furniture of an ordinary home. Mm-hmm. Today it's not, so when people see magicians doing a standard, uh, some kinds of tricks, they think this gadget had to be made especially for magic yeah. because it isn't yeah. part of the real that world. It's a prop.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, and that's, that's a fun, peculiar way, but that's one way technology has affected magic. You've got to adapt to it. You can't do sad things. Jerry, Jerry always had me in his audience when he could, and I would have a handkerchief in case no one else had a handkerchief. Oh, so would, He'd say, borrow
0: a handkerchief. I would be willing to give him this handkerchief. Otherwise, he couldn't do his trick. Leave aside technology, then the world is the world smarter. I mean, with all the information we have, I think we
3: consider ourselves smarter. But is it difficult, more difficult to fool people? It doesn't seem like it's any more difficult. We're smarter in certain directions, but the the stuff that the conjurers have learned, and and they've they've learned along with uh, with all the other professions as well, uh, that that stuff that is, is still good. It's still good, it'll still fool people. People can be deceived by a good conjurer. Now the show that that Banachek just gave last night here was astonishing, he was doing mentalism. He appeared to know things that he could not possibly have known. And he was very convincing, don't you agree? Oh, unbelievable. Yes, he, he's a great, I, have said I, that I, but it was. I gave him some of his first lessons I must remember. <laughs> but uh, yes, no, he, he's, he's, he's beautiful, as a performer he's just unbeatable, there's no question of it. And he fooled those people, they were gasping all around the audience, wow, how did he know that? You know, because he had done his work well, let's put it well, that way. Well, it's a room of 500 skeptics.
0: And they're all getting fooled. And yes. that, he had a hard The woman he pulled up last did not seem, if I were in that position, she did not want to, didn't seem like she really wanted to cooperate. No, she
3: wasn't very helpful. Uh, but he has to work around that, you see.
0: He worked marvelously. I mean, oh.
3: yes.
0: Yeah. And the whole touching you and then the other person feels it, that's a.
3: Yeah, That's yeah.
1: especially oh, yeah. of his. Oh yeah, that's especially of his. He's very good at that. Most magicians
3: couldn't do that. Okay, that's true. And most mentalists, I I think, don't even know about right. the basis of, of that that's particular right, yeah. demonstration. But Banishek is whew, number one.
0: It's a room of 500 skeptics. You were there, I think? Right, yes. Room of 500 skeptics. We're all amazed. I'm, I guess I can't consider myself in anybody's company here, but I was amazed. You're all amazed. We're, but we know it's not real. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and, but, and we're striving to figure it out. Of course, he's never going to, I'm sorry. But
2: we're only amazed because we know it's not real. Right? If we, if we took for granted that he has ESP, and then we'd say, well, he's just doing ESP. Right? So, it, magicians always have to break some natural rules that we all accept. And, and even the people who say to Randy or to Ray, you must be using ESP, they don't believe that everybody has this ability. They, they think this is an exception to a rule, and it's the exceptionalness of it that, that makes it so important.
1: There's nothing about uh, the skeptics' reaction to Banachek. They are aware that there's no supernatural explanations, but the people talking to me, and that's very standard, they were saying, well, he's very good at picking up the, the face minutiae in the facial expressions and stuff like that to guide him.
0: And you're laughing here? Yeah? yeah.
1: Well, because cause, cause even those are b- a bizarre explanations, but for a skeptic it's at least a, it's part of the scientific world. It doesn't take you out of the scientific world into the paranormal. So they come up with explanations like that. And of course Banachek in his presentation actually and, and also uh, the day before, night before um, uh, J- Jamie Swiss also encourage that uh, a lot of mentalists like to. They feel Especially those magicians who are now doing mentalism, but don't want to be caught, uh, you know it, uh, Preaching uh, that reality of paranormal They try to give pseudo Naturalistic exclamation what they're doing. We're picking up your facial expressions or doing stuff like that. So Uh, that's what so Banachek and both both Banacek and I I noticed that uh, Jamie both they would say one, two, three, four, five, six, and they're likely looking at the person and getting some some facial expression, clue like that. Uh, so they're trying so I don't know what to make of that, but I find it fascinating.
0: Do you enjoy going to the
3: shows, you two? Oh Oh, yes. I can't
0: imagine being either one of them, because you guys tend to go sit right down front.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're well, on
0: no. stage. Yeah. And I'm, there's a very famous bass player. I'm a musician by trade named Charlie Hayden. One of his first important gigs in New York. Um, he wasn't well known, and I can't remember exactly the story, but three other very famous bassists walked in while he was playing a set. And they sat right down front. And then he said, from that time on, I play with my eyes closed. And
3: he's always <laughs> he playing with his eyes
0: closed. So here's Banachek checker huh? Jamie. We can understand, understand? that. Jamie and Swiss on stage, you guys come in and you sit right down front. Yeah, I would think that that would be intimidating. Well, I
3: was chuckling a lot, but I don't chuckle in loud.
2: But, you know, one of the things about surprise, I mean, I, I'm amazed at what Banachek does. Okay. But I, I remember an incident, this must be 25 years ago in London, we had a, a PSYCOP conference, and we were at lunch. Randy was there, I was there, and the other people were all strangers to us both, I think. And they were hoping, Randy, would do some magic. Well, I mentioned I'm an amateur magician. I learned some tricks even as a kid. And Randy did at the table, one of the first tricks I learned when I was about seven years old, he made a salt shaker disappear. <laughs> and I said to him afterwards, gee, I'm surprised to see you do such a, that's a kid's trick. And Randy said, did you see the look on their faces? Yeah. That's they the were astonished. It. Yeah. Yeah. So what had happened, something had vanished, and he did it so well. It wasn't just the vanish, it was the patter, it was the movements, and...
1: Also it's the great Randy ready
2: but 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 the aston- and that that always stuck with me that that astonishment comes because you see something happen that you know can't happen and uh, and the way you did it was was marvelous, even though to me it was a kid's trick it was
3: yeah oh, it's a kid's trick, oh yeah, no question of it's in kids' trick yeah. books as a matter of fact, but i I know people who have read those books that, but how did you do it? I did it exactly <laughs> the same way well one thing
0: I noticed. That now that you've mentioned that, is um, it was an hour-long show. I don't remember exactly how many actual tricks there were, maybe four. And as a musician, if I played a set, that's like playing four songs. And there's a lot of showmanship around the actual trick, all oh, the yeah. talking
3: and the hyped-up to it. So that plays into the surprise? when. No, it, it sets an atmosphere. It, it sets a belief structure in the mind. And they're reminding you of things that you shouldn't be reminded of, things that either didn't happen, they say they did happen, but they didn't happen, so they're implanting false memories in your mind as you go along. Remember, I never spoke to this lady. Well, he did speak to the lady. She only said yes or no, but he did did speak to her. And they will say afterwards when they're describing it, he never spoke to the lady. That's not true, he did. But he has implanted the idea in their mind. I never spoke to the lady. I never went near her. I did, etc. And and he nods while he's doing this, and that makes them nod and agree with it. And they don't see any trick being done there, but it is.
0: And I did notice that both of them, I think, said, "No, I don't always get this right." Yeah. And then they
3: proceeded to get everything right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, no, that's all preparation. Um, by,
0: by the
1: way, it's 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 sort of a, a mantra among. People who do mentalism type stuff, even though you can do it perfectly you got to throw in a snake here and there because to make it plausible when you 're doing mental magic if you're doing regular magic you don't want to make mistakes and let people think you make you made any mistakes but you're doing mental magic, you want to make sure that you make a few mistakes because that means it can't
3: be trickery it's got to be. Now, Batashek was saying things last night, for example. Now, when you first stood up, you didn't turn to face me. That had nothing to do with right. it. Right. But he plants that idea in their mind, and they say, oh, that's how he knew. And That's not true at all, you see. But he has to plant these ideas, not plant them by forcing them to believe it. Remember, you know, he just mentions, you didn't even face me. You didn't turn to me. And you didn't surprise me at all when you didn't answer the question, and, and he, he creates an atmosphere that confuses them easily.
1: Now, now let me tell you one thing I think is important to me. Um, I'm not sure Randy would agree with this, because Randy is among the people who probably correctly thinks that it takes a magician to evaluate a psychic. You know, when, when scientists are testing psychics, there should be a magician around. Mm-hmm. There should be Randy, but Randy is more than a magician. He's a scholar. He knows a lot of other things as well. And I think typical magicians, in fact there were many many magicians who were around Geller and they they uh believed in him, they endorsed him and they were fooled by him. And they didn't want to admit that they knew how he was doing it, so they made things worth. I think it was Milburn Christopher said he has a uh secret uh trans transition. in his tooth. Yeah. yeah, in his tooth. Which is stupid, <laughs> but Magicians don't like to admit they can be wrong. They don't know. Okay, If they don't know, they'll make up something like that. But another thing about magicians is that if you go to magic conventions consistently, we fool one another. Magicians can fool each other. And one time I was at a convention. I used to, for six, months, for six years before I went to graduate school, I was a professional mentalist. I did mentalism magic. Not because I liked mentalism, because I made more money at it. And then, um, but when I went to graduate school, I began publishing most of my stuff in the Linking Way and stuff like that, some of the things I'd created. And one day at a magic convention about 1950, in fact, that's when I met, first met Jerry Andrews. Uh I was at this magic convention and someone came up to me, because magicians love to do this, and, and show you a trick and fool you. So this guy did a trick and he, he fooled me. I didn't know who the guy was or anything, either, but he fooled me and then he said, "That's not my trick. It was some a trick created by Ray Hyman." And <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He fooled me with my own trick. He had he had changed some of the just a little bit. He turned changed some of the some of the, he changed the pattern completely. But he changed some of the some things around. But he says he hadn't changed anything. That was Ray Hyman's trick. He read it in the linking Ring. Uh, a trick called psychoanalysis that's what i got a gold medal for i think the first gold medal I gave for mentalism and he fooled me with it completely and once he told me what then i realized what had happened but i was led down a garden path i was not thinking god's going to show my own trick to me and he just changed a few things i was fooled completely by it
0: wow that is amazing Uh, let me ask you a question about that i mentioned i was a music teacher i'm I'm a musician i guess i mentioned but i also teach a lot of lessons and sometimes i'll get a, a student that you know, boom, they are just unbelievable. And they will, within a few years, I've shown them everything I know, and the mom says, oh, you're a great teacher. And I said, I just exposed them to the knowledge. They, they are really learned it. So some, I know it's probably not correct to say, but some people are more
3: natural that than others. Do you think the same thing is true of all this? Oh, I appreciate it. I I, I believe it's quite possible, yeah. Now, there are lots of Mozarts around, actually, that maybe are not found yet, but there are Mozarts, and there have been down through history. There have been people as talented as as Mozart, who pretty well knew it all from the very beginning, as soon as he learned the scales, I'll bet. And uh, there are some, some really ingenious people who will go into the... The conjuring trade and and revolutionized it. A man named Animan, for example, uh, was was not known to the magicians at first. But the minute that he entered the conjuring trade, his name was on every magician's lips because he was doing stuff. That. No, he couldn't have done that. Yes, he did do that, etc. I've seen I've seen this so many times myself. Now Banachek, Banachek is so gifted. He really is gifted. It's it's not a case of he just has. Good skills or something like that. He's gifted, because as I'm hearing, I'm sitting there, just smiling very, very softly, and not hoping not to be obvious. But when he would say a thing or do a thing or turn, even turn around on his heel and walk in a, in a different direction, I would say, "Right on. That's the way to do it." You know, it, it, it. I saw it, but nobody else saw it because I'm tuned to that sort of thing. And so,
0: part of the natural is the personality, right? That you can't. There's some things. uh, I think of
1: uh, uh, some people are anti. uh, uh, What magicians believe? You have to have a presentation. You have to have uh, charisma. You know stuff like that. There's, but this David Blaine comes along. He has no (laughs) charisma, anything. He's the hardest thing going.
3: He had. He had no. It was his approach. Was with a deck of cards. He'd walk up to people in the street, saying, "Want to see a trick? Uh-huh. Want to see a card trick? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just like a, like a rank amateur, like somebody going to fumble, and he blew him away. The street was empty after he, after he did the trick. But the mannerisms that was him. You see, and that that was natural to him. He could do this kind of thing. Uh, you. I uh, like to see a card trick. And and that's about the way he did it when he first well certainly when he first started and pretty well through the rest of it as so well. He's still doing that kind of thing and it works perfectly for him. But there are different things. Different lawyers do the same thing. I'm sure in the courtroom in addressing the uh, the, the judge and in addressing the the jury and the the audience. And a good lawyer is a good performer. The expressions, his turns and that sort of thing, and his little expressions like this will affect the courtroom and the magistrate, whether they know it or not.
0: Well, that was Maria Konnikova's talk. Were you all there good storytellers? And that was very shocking to me, how much it would apply to everything, from a job interview to a conversation. I mean, it's just... That that was I learned something there. Whether I'll be able to put it to use or not, I don't know. Well it's, <laughs> well, it's it's the,
1: over and over again. Psychologists say people we are story creatures, and if you put it in, 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 something into a story form, that's
2: most yeah. powerful. You know better than anyone else than that, right? Sure, and and also the stories. I mean, people are disarmed by them if they're told in a very not a glib way, but a smooth, confident way, and and the whole reason that con men or con people are called cons is because they produce confidence. Yeah, And, and so, for example, if, if a person were to come up to you and say, oh, gee, I've got some, uh, some, some land for sale in, in, in Florida, the person comes up and says, I've got some land for sale. Only a few people are going to get into this. Do you want it? The, the tone of voice, the confidence yeah. is so important in producing a, a, a response. And this has been well studied. So how come we're still fooled by these things?
0: We're still fooled by stories that are too good to be true.
2: Well, because if we weren't, uh, see again, if you look at the way we have to function and sort of working our way through the world, we're, we're dealing most of the time with things that aren't out to get us, right? Yeah. And so if we're distrusting all the time, if, if your neighbor says, uh, you know, I want to borrow your, your, uh, your, your, your shovel and you think, oh, can I trust this guy to give it back? I mean, life would be very miserable. Yeah. And so most of the time, trusting works. If, if you don't trust, we think of you as paranoid, right? But the confidence person can exploit that. And we've learned automatically to associate certain things with, with trust, looking a person in the eye, smiling appropriately, not too much. Um, and, and so the confidence person can capture those kinds of cues which disarm people.
1: You know, I, I uh, have a, one of my standard talks I give is on the psychology of deception or how we are fooled and I use the con games and stuff like that and I show all the different ways people can be fooled. Then I bring up, at the end of my lecture I say, I want to make the point is that in in a sense the very fact that con games work so easily in this country is actually encouraging because it means that for most of the time you can trust people. Everything depends on trust and if you live in a society where you can't trust anyone, Con games don't work, but and society doesn't work either. But in East Germany, it was um, really hell because parents were squealing on their children, children were squealing, squealing, squealing on their, uh, informing on their parents. And they got everyone informed on everyone, and no one could trust anyone. No con games, no con houses wasn't going to succeed there. But nothing was succeeding. It was, it was society breaks down that way? It's terrible. So the very fact that it's so easy to fool people in this country means that maybe things aren't all that bad. Right.
0: Do you agree with that? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, in, in, in general terms, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the problem we have in modern society is that uh, people are, are they're given so much information, and sometimes that's given in a way that seems very trustworthy. And so, for example, there are some things that appear to be documentaries on television, which are nothing other than, than uh, you know, made up fictional accounts of things. So uh, again, as, as Ray says, it's important that people can trust, but it's sad to see when you know, larger groups of people exploit that trust by, for example, pretending something's a documentary when it's not. The, the, the individual con person, most people aren't going to experience con men very often, but everybody watches television. And so, if you have, I uh, mean, I've I've been in, involved in a number of, of of TV programs where, at the beginning, I'm told that I'm going to be presented as the skeptic, and then afterwards when I see the program, they've edited it out so I look like I believe in things, and and this has been done sometimes by programs that claim they're science oriented, and so how how can people dis- distinguish between what is real and what isn't when? It's dressed up as something that's meant to be real.
1: You know, one time, when I first got into, maybe it must, must be true of you too, I did my first TV performance on a Duma network, doesn't exist anymore, but they didn't have, they didn't have uh, ways of uh, cutting and editing tape. Uh, yeah, editing, everything yeah, was done yeah. live, in real time. Oh. And even if a great comedy show, Sid Caesar and stuff like that, The show a show, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. live. My Magicians were on, was live, You're seeing it as it is today. Everything's edited, and 90 percent of what they take, including what taken here, I suspect, is going to be left on the cutting room floor. And so you can, they take a lot. I mean, I know for a 20-minute, 20-second slot, they're going to use me in. Sometimes, they will spend the whole day taking, taking videotape of me. And then they can cut it up and make any story they want out of it. For me, I can. I I've been shown that. several times as he said. I've been shown as as a believer. You know, they they've, they've been able. I spent the whole day one time in uh, with uh, Leslie Stahl. I think it was. She's still around, when, but when she's young, and we were in the CBS the office of the editor of CBS it was on remote viewing when they first came on, and they had done. Did an experiment with um, that lady who is uh, Bob John's uh, sidekick. um, Uh, Oh yes, Um. whatever. The remote viewing just come on the scene, so there's a small college in Chicago that did some remote viewing. They had this remote viewer. They're doing some experiments, and so CBS went there and they designed a kind of experiment. They actually hired planes to go over and do the remote viewing a little bit to, to create targets for the remote viewing and then they did some judging of it. So they brought me in to critique the whole thing. Randy, Randy just vanished.
0: <laughs> so due to, unfor- due to for- foreseen circumstances that became unforeseen, Randy has left the room. I, I'd like to thank him very much for being here. So it was an honor for me to have him in the room with you two. Um, I'm so go on with the remote viewing. Okay,
1: so this, they did this it was, it was called CBS Morning. It was going to be like 60 minutes, but it was going to be on a morning slot uh, to focus on the morning group. So it was called CBS Morning. I think it was called CBS Morning. And this is one of the first shows they were going to do. And they were going to hand, do this remote viewing thing. And they had actually collected footage. They did their own remote viewing experiment from the an airplane. And they brought me in to be the critic of it. Okay, for balance, as they said, This standard way, and they spent, Leslie Styles spent the whole day with me, interviewing me in the office of uh, Paley, I guess his name, he was the head of CBS, he was out, so they made a big deal of the fact of interviewing me in his office, okay, and they used what they call the one-camera technique, they had the camera on me, on my face while she was interviewing me. and. She kept asking me the same questions again and again and again. I didn't watch. She's she was trying to, so I was thinking she was trying to, she said, because we want to make sure we get you, get you exactly what you mean. And then she took me out to lunch at a Chinese restaurant we came back. She began asking me the same questions again and then finally, she, suddenly she turned around and said, why don't you believe in God, which had nothing to do with what we're talking about. And I was caught by surprise and of course oh. this is what they wanted, something like that. And so when they finally did, they fortunately didn't show it because they they, they didn't the program. It was only on for a couple of times, and they decided to pull it. But when I saw the tape of it, what they had done, well, they did show that one, unfortunately. So I I was on it, but I was on it only for a couple of seconds almost. And he got me one time saying, "Well, here's what a famous skeptic has to say about it all." And I says, "Oh well." anyone could be fooled or something like that or something like that and just about it that was all and then another time (laughs) you know because why did you believe in god they don't say that was the question but they are me going like i'm amazed
0: at what something's happening i must say that does not sound respectable for for a news organization like see no wonder we're fooled all the time if they're throwing stuff out and i I, it doesn't surprise me but i guess i am surprised because it just does not sound it sounds staged well you ought to get both Jim and I, I've been since
1: the fifties, I've been on television several times. I would say the majority of times, I've been made a fool of, in other words. It It was intentional, though. Intentional, yeah. And um, uh, people ask me, I have have friends in the skeptic, some in a skeptical movement also, who refuse to go on. They just refuse to go on, not entirely. they say, why do you keep doing it? Well, once in a while it comes out right. Like, uh, on um, uh, Rosemary Altea was before John Edwards. She's the, she's the best in my mind of the people who get on, you have know, groups of people, and, and she brings back the spirits and talks to them and stuff like that. Well, Rosemary Altea came to uh, New York and uh, had lunch with a New York Times uh, reporter who didn't believe in her originally. but. The reporter did some stuff to her lunch, so she got a very favorable write-up in the New York Times, and that justified for 60 minutes. That's 60 minutes. Um, the one with um, Hugh. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Hugh Downs. Twenty twenty. So twenty twenty decided not to just do a segment on on Rosemary Terror, but to do two segments. One segment was going to be all Rosemary. Altea, they they showed her background. They showed, they actually gathered a family, a group of mothers and fathers who had lost children under bad circumstances, and Rosemary was there to contact the children. And that was terrible, I thought, but they did that, and they showed all that. So the first segment was Rosemary, Altea, then they they came to my home, they put the camp monitors on there, and we, we would watch a segment of Rosemary, Doing her stuff, and then Leslie Stahl. This Les, is Les, Leslie Stahl. She was one of the people, along with um, Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs. That's 2020, yeah. Yeah, and that was maybe it was Leslie Stahl. She was on. She's the third person on that program at the time. So she came to my home, and she. They'd already sent me ahead several clips, outtakes of what they'd done with Rosemary, and then, in my home. She sat opposite me, and we had the monitor between us. And they'd run a little clip of Rosemary doing some of her stuff, and then they would turn to me and ask me to explain it all. And that was nicely done. I was able to explain it. And also during this time, uh, not, her name's not Leslie Style, It's because Leslie Stahl's the one on
0: Primetime Life. There's
1: 60 Minutes, I think. Oh, you're right. Okay. Yeah, this was one, but she was on 2020. Okay, but anyways. Name will come to me. I'm, I've I been him almost all the time.
0: I don't remember it. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> anyway, uh, she, uh, one thing, she was a skeptic, of course, but at one time uh, Rosemary turned to her and said, I see two men standing behind you from the spirit world. And she went on, and one of them happened to have a cancer of some sort. And this lady, it's not Leslie Stahl because she's someone else, but okay, because I've also been interviewed by Leslie Stahl. But anyways, this lady says- Diane Sawyer. Is that? Diane Sawyer. No, not Diane Sawyer, I wish, I wish it was. <laughs> oh, now I know, remember, it's Lynn Shearer was her name. Uh, she was wonderful. She came to my house and she had one reservation because she had one experience with Rosemary, which shattered her. Skepticism. Rosemary, she said, Rosemary was able to see. You know, she had her her husband had died uh, a year earlier, a little more than a year earlier, of, of a terrible cancer, and um, she was still getting over it. And suddenly, here is Rosemary saying, looking at her and saying, "I see someone standing behind you, has cancer and so on." And she knew that Rosemary was talking about her husband. So that that really shook her up. She realized that. Now she was a celebrity of some sorts and it, there was publicity to some extent on her husband dying, being, you know, this was a obituary published in the Times and places like that. But still she didn't think Rosemary could have gotten it that way because you know, she came from England and stuff like that. But yet, so that was a little bit of a plausibility that maybe Rosemary got the information. But then while we were looking at this and, and I was, she actually a video of that scene too. We're looking at that on the monitor, and this is during the program, it worked out very well. There is Rosemary looking at her and saying, I see two men standing behind you. And she goes on and talking about the the man, the man, one man on the left and the other man on the, she says some some they, he went over because of some something to do with some illness like cancer or something like that. And she mostly that that's my husband. Well, and she said that out loud to, to um, Rosemary, that's my husband. Immediately that other guy disappeared oh. and only to help me focus on the husband. And immediately Lynn Starr, uh, Lynn Shear realized what was going on with that too. That this was, you know, she put a lot into it and, and Rosemary uh, took advantage of the situation. And so that helped me too, you know. So anyways, that went well. And they did it on 2020, the second segment, and uh, that's one of my best of all, because they really let me say my whole thing, and I was able to rebut everything that Rosemary did. And both Hugh Downs and Lynn Shearer, when they summed it up, they both say, well, I guess that settles that about Rosemary. Barbara Walters, though, yeah. she, but, she says, yes, but you gotta believe something is there. <laughs> something
0: like that. Well, I wanna thank you both for being here, and I want to sum up with one question though. This could be a doozy, I suppose, because based on all this self-deception, a lot of it, right, we're deceiving ourselves, we're preserving our own beliefs, and you're playing off of that. At what age, I want to bring this back into kids, so we're trying to make the world even smarter, and your cognitive psychology and your expertise as well, at what stages is it appropriate to introduce formal, cognitive uh, critical thinking
2: for kids? As young as you can. And, re- and so
0: some, is there, is there uh, any uh, developmental stages where you can explain where they'll get some critical thinking and then it just it
2: grows? From well the, the, the thing is that at a certain age, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, they're, they're still prone to these kinds of things that lead them towards the supernatural. So at a certain point their brains aren't really mature enough, but you can start at three or four or five in introducing some notions that will eventually take hold. Certainly by the time a child is 10 or 11, you should be able to teach them critical thinking if you've been doing it. And we do that anyway as parents, right? If, if, uh, if a child says there's a, a bogeyman in the closet, parent will say, well, let's have a look. There's no one there. We're, we're teaching them critical thinking. So we can do it in all sorts of ways. The, the, the problem is the society also teaches children, there are tooth fairies, <laughs> there's Santa Claus. I'm not saying, I don't want to be no, I understand. A, a, a Grinch, but, but we teach them these things. I can remember when I was a kid, I believed in Santa Claus. and I couldn't believe my parents had been lying to me when they said there was no Santa Claus because they told me too early. I made the same mistake with my son. I, I told him, I can't remember how old he was, you know there's no Santa. He said, oh yeah, I knew that. I found out years later, he went to his school. He was shocked, told all his friends that I said there was no Santa Claus. They were all upset. So, so e- <laughs> here's the problem, we, we want kids to believe in fantasy and, and how can we do that and still teach them to be critical thinkers? It's a balance, but I think we can, we can introduce elements of it very early in life. There's another twist to that. I'm not a developmental psychologist,
1: by the way, and the developmental psychologist have been doing some good work about uh, at what point can children be fooled, and, and by the way, magicians are into that as well. There's a specialty called children's magic because regular magic Kai Banachek does, or, or Jamie and Ian Swiss does, or Randy does even. Kids below a certain age aren't taken in by that at all. One reason is you could take your head off and put it on a on, on uh, desk and then put it back on again. Uh, above five or seven years old, most kids realize that can't be done. So it's, it's amazing. Whereas uh, kids be, uh, uh, you know, you very young kids. There's no magic to that because they see the cartoons where well. all that stuff happens all the time, you know. So, so there are these twists and turns on all this. But one thing, and that's just anecdotal, happened to me. I was always at, being asked at the university to go give talks to to grade schools and stuff like that, and I was a little leery about going talking to, you know, elementary school children and stuff like that. Middle school children seemed okay, and High school children.
0: Elementary is a tough audience, I'll bet.
1: Yeah. Well, it turns out a great audience for oh, me. Oh, good. Because it turned out if I went to a high school and began debunking Gell and stuff like that, I got a lot of pushback. They, 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 they would really not, not buy everything I was saying, and they just push back. I go to the elementary school. And I one school I remember especially they had a uh, for a the project they had this whole wall covered with um, talking to plants. In fact, as, a, as an experiment, the teacher gave every kid two plants and told, you know, talk, talk to one of the plants and don't talk to the other plant. See if it grows better, right?
0: What's that to see if it grows better the one
1: that's talked to right, right. response. And at the end, of the, I was I came at the end of the year with the kids had brought back their plants and the one they talked to was nice growing, and the it wasn't. So I asked the kids. Uh how do you count for that? And we said, Well, look, plants have feelings and stuff like that. And then I talked to him some more and I said, Well, how did you where did you keep these plants when you're doing it? He says, Well, this plant, you know, one day we weren't gonna talk to you just put out in the portion left it alone and this plant they we were gonna talk to, they had it in the house, they feed it well, they put put food plant food in it and they put water in it. I said, Well, um, you know, uh, if if, you, if you're if treating that plant that way and the other plant's not getting any food, you're not watering it, well, what, what you might predict? And they say, well, the one that's getting treated well is going to grow better. And then I said, well, then why do you need to to, to, to pretend that, that talking to them made a difference? And I, they would love that. You know, I said, oh, so that wasn't a talking. It was just that we didn't control them. We didn't treat them the same way. But if I did that with high school kids, I'd get pushback.
2: I'll give, do you have a? Well, I, I, yeah, I guess uh, the, the, the thing is that children are teachable. And if you teach them the, the, the excitement about exploring mysteries and, and you ground them in the, the, the rules of the natural world and help them figure out how things could happen naturally so that you, and, and teach them always that they won't always know the answer and, and that, uh, that, that what they should try to do if they see something really mysterious is not say, I can't think of how it it happened, therefore it's psychic, but rather to say, I don't know. And if I want to find out, let me dig into this. And that's, that's the the big difference between, I think a person who becomes a critical thinker, they're willing to say, I don't know right now, I have to accept the ambiguity. I'm going to dig deeper. And otherwise, of course, uh, people are, are looking for some easy explanation. And if they can't think of the natural then the supernatural, Fits so well for them because they've heard so much about it. Now, yesterday, Massimo Palladoro
1: gave a good talk at the yes. uh, at a luncheon on the rules for skeptics. Uh, how do you do? Conduct an investigation of some claim or something like that. And one of the most important rules is, and he quoted Sherlock Holmes. Of course, uh, there's an irony in that, but we won't get into that. Okay. But Sherlock Holmes said, is quoted as saying that. And I'm paraphrasing, that it's a, a terrible mistake to begin theorizing or hypothesizing before you get all the data and know what you know, know exactly what the data is 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 real. that's real, real. It's there in some ways. And I remember a man uh, many years ago who tried to develop a program for children because they discovered that going through they did a study on Long Island. Where they recorded what went on in the classroom in grades preschool all the way up to the sixth grade. And what they found, they weren't looking for, what they found was that during the preschool, most of the talking in the classroom was done by the children. And a, as you go up the line, less and less of the children are talking. By the time you get to sixth grade, almost, no, most of the, almost all talking in the classroom is by the teacher. And um, that led this man to develop a uh, program called uh, inquiry training where he would show, that time they only had motion pictures to, to show, they would show short motion pictures of, of something that was silent too. like I remember one was there's a fish tank with water in it, a glass fish tank, and someone would take a, a closed can and put it Dumping in the water and the can will collapse. And the idea was to show that, he had a series of short segments of that, to show that in the classroom to the children and then have the children figure out what's going on here. The, the teacher only answer yes or no and the kids had to ask questions. And then he found, to their surprise, that the brightest kids in the classroom did worse than the not so bright kids in coming up with the right answer why this can collapse and the reason was that these brightest kids in the classroom were the ones who were rewarded for being fast with the answers. They would jump in right. So when they were showing these little things there, they immediately developed a hypothesis as to what what they thought was happening and they had were stuck with that hypothesis that blocked them from doing anything else. The less kids, kids who weren't so bright, didn't jump with any hypothesis in. They just waited until they made sure, until they were sure what, what actually what the details were, was the water hot, was it cold? And only then did they jump in and figure out what happened. When they taught the bright kids to withhold, in other words, not to make any hypotheses, to withhold that, the first thing that bright kids, they taught them to do is you got to first make sure that what you saw was what you saw. So they asked questions about, well, was the was the, did the can go in the water and so on? Was the water hot, was it cold, stuff like that? Before before they make any, guess, any guesses, and then once they've gone through all that, and then were allowed to make guesses, they were much li- more likely to come up with the correct answer. Now here's where we get to critical thinking. I am not a fan of critical thinking, even though for years I taught courses in it. Fine, I'm. If uh, the caveat I have is that critical thinking classes, most and all the books I look at, I have a collection of critical thinking books and courses, they spend all the time on how to interpret the data that you have. Which is good as long as you have good data. But there's garbage in, garbage out. And the most important thing is to make sure that the data you have is good data. That's very hard. And I think we don't spend enough time making sure that the data we're talking about is good data. And if you have that, the rest of it can take care of itself. Critical thinking is good to think about that, but uh, science, as I understand it, began with the difference between before there was good science and, and, and after there was good science, was making sure you got good
2: data. And everything else took care of itself. Yeah, just one last comment I wanted to make was that, I think that, that skeptics have to be very careful not to assume that they are always going to detect the difference between fantasy and reality. I think every human being can be fooled. And, and you can have someone who's very skeptical about ESP and is right on in terms of a scientific understanding of why people might come to believe he has ESP and yet go and, and get into a foolish marriage, even though the friends knew this is a stupid choice to make, you're not suited at all, or lose a whole bunch of money on an investment that everyone else would say that was really dumb. We, we, we all have pockets of irrationality and I think the way to be a good critical thinker or a good skeptic is to admit I can be fooled and be aware of that all the time. Gentlemen,
0: thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ray Hyman, right? You were both doctors. I was going to say that. Thank you for being here. 502 Conversations. It's been, been a, pleasure. a great honor for me to sit and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you very much.